Well, students, are you excited? We are, we are on the cusp of summer. It is nearly here. In fact, for some of you, it may already have arrived. And just, just think of it. All the confinement that you experienced in the school year as it relates to your schedule, uh, the, 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 the assignments, the readings, the, the papers, the essays, all of the, the burdens that your teacher just lays upon you, layer after layer of burden, it's gone. And now you have the wide open spaces of summer vacation. But maybe you're not a student anymore. Maybe you've, you've, you've wrapped up schooling and now you are working in the real world and you're realizing uh, it's, it's not all that it's cracked up to be. There's, there's a lot of limits. There's a lot of confinement. Your, your boss has high demands, high expectations. Your schedule is rigid. You have to be there early. You have to stay late. And there's no summer vacations anymore. Or maybe... You've been married a few years and it was a it was a great time early on but now you're starting to feel as though it's a bit of a ball and chain. Right? The the marriage, the relationship is placing demands and limits. It's constraining, it's confining you. Or maybe you've had children and and you you love your kids to bits. But there's constraints. You feel the, the, the burden, the weight of responsibility. You, you feel as though you no longer have the freedom to sleep like you used to. Now, we live in a world, like modern Americans tend to think of freedom in terms of the ability to do what we want to do, the ability to, to, to choose what it is we want to do. And so naturally, things like uh, school, work, relationships, friendships, all of those place a type of limit on us. And it's interesting to me that, uh, you know, the I've seen things on the millennial generation, for example. They have, uh, in many cases, have are not getting married to the degree that, that we used to. There, there also, there's also an interesting trend where the millennial generation is pursuing uh, their work hard so that, and, and, and also sort of deferring kind of the comforts and conveniences that many of their parents sought in an effort to live more thriftily so that they can retire early and then be out from under kind of the, the demands and constraints in confinement of a workplace, which is interesting. It may be that kind of this, this modern idea of freedom is really driving some of those trends in, in this millennial generation. Now, what if our thinking on freedom being the ability to do whatever it is I want to do, what if that's all wrong? What if rather than, than like our, our schooling or our workplace or our boss or our spouse or our children, what if rather than being balls and chains to the unfettered life, those relationships are actually safeguards to the biggest threat we face, ourselves? What if the biggest threat 
for our freedom is not what's outside of us, but what's inside of us. It's not an overbearing teacher or boss or children or spouse, but it's the sin that's within. Okay, that's the question that we're going to consider today. And uh, that's the question that our text considers. We're gonna, we've got two points today. The first is a consideration of our enslavement. And then secondly, uh, how to find freedom. So first, our enslavement. Now you'll see in verse 31 of uh, John chapter 8, Jesus is talking to those who believe. Now, this, there's an interesting category that John uses because he's talked about folks that have believed. But as we see as this passage unfolds versus the rest of chapter 8, from verse 31 on, as it unfolds, what we're going to see is that these so-called believers um, actually don't believe, as it turns out. John has this category of belief that you might think of as like a twilight zone. You know, twilight, it can go dusk, it can, it can be dawn or dusk, which means it can go either dark or it can go light. And so there's this category of belief. It's a false belief where a person is sort of beginning to see Jesus, beginning to, 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 to listen, to believe, and yet it goes dark because that's what's going to happen over the course of this passage. I mean, they're going to, they're going to, these so-called believers are going to call Jesus a racial slur. They're going to call him a Samaritan. They're going to call him demon possessed. And by the end of the chapter, end of chapter eight, they're going to pick up stones in an effort to to kill him. That's their desire. That's what the that's what their belief leads them to do. It's like the seed, remember the parable of the sower, the seed that falls on rock and it sprouts, it shows signs of life, but it quickly withers because it's not connected uh, to the life-giving soil. It's not connected to the spirit. And so Jesus says to these believers, John chapter 8 verse 31, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, the crowd that he's speaking to thinks to themselves, what? Free? They say, look at what they say in verse 33. We are offspring of Abraham, and we've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Really? Uh, we're free. Now we may think, well, that, that sounds interesting that they would say that because it's hard to imagine a more oppressed people. I mean, think about the, the offspring of Abraham. There's hardly a time up to this point when they had not been oppressed, captive, in bondage in some way or form. I mean, there's the Egyptians, there's the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and as Jesus is speaking to them, it's the Romans. And yet what they're describing is that they have maintained through all of those regimes, political regimes that, that held them captive, they have maintained this inward freedom that the sons of Abraham, the people of Israel, had remained through it all a peculiar, identifiable oddity in the world that they had resisted their captors and had maintained their identity as the people of God, as, as the sons of Abraham, the children of Abraham. In other words, they have the illusion of freedom. 
because it, it is true. They, they, they've maintained their identity. But what Jesus is saying is, look, underneath that, you're not free. And I wonder if we too have an illusion to freedom. What do we think of Jesus's claim that you will be set free? Do we not think to ourselves, what, what are you talking about? I am free. I'm an American. I'm an offspring of, of Washington and Jefferson and Franklin. I've got freedom. It's America. I can do whatever it is I want. And I think Jesus would say to us, not so fast. Not so fast, patriot. Look at verse 34. Look at what he says. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you. In other words, Jesus is saying, listen up. I'm about to toss verbal dynamite in your midst. So like, brace yourselves. This is what he says. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. In other words, if you think you're free, it's an illusion because you're not. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. That there is a spiritual enslavement that Jesus is talking about. Now you can imagine an Israelite father telling his, his daughter or his son, you know, we've, we've, we've been oppressed, we've been in bondage, we've had these, these political uh, captors that have held us in check. But through it all, we have maintained our freedom. And what Jesus is saying is like, no, it's the opposite, actually. You, you've never been free. Even at the height of Solomon's power, when no one stood in your way, you were still in bondage to sin. And by the way, this is universally true. It's not just a problem for the sons of Abraham. It is a problem for the sons of Adam. It is a universal human problem, a fundamental problem. We are all spiritually enslaved. Do you believe that you're shackled to sin? That you're not free? This may be one of the most verifiable Christian doctrines. You know, we, we, we oftentimes know what we should do. We even desire to do the right thing. And yet, sin exerts this power over us. Do you feel that? Maybe it's anger. You, 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 you struggle with anger. And you know, you, you know it's harmful. You know it's not good for you or your family or your friends or your workplace relationships or whatever it is. You know it's a problem. And yet, when the circumstances are right, you lash out in anger, even though you don't want to. Why do you do that? Because you're enslaved to sin. This is, this is how addiction works. It begins to, to own us. Right, uh, uh, the way addiction works is we, we the sin that we are entangled in, it, it, it overpromises and underdelivers, and we believe the promises, the soaring promises that these sins will deliver if we just follow them, if 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 we submit to the power that they have over us, and we and they consume us, they take away everything. They are all-consuming in their demands, right? If you, if you struggle with substance abuse, say alcohol, if left unchecked, that alcohol struggle 
will take over your life. It will demand that you get rid of everything to serve the bottle or the drug or whatever the substance may be. You'll lose family. You'll lose spouse. You'll, you might even lose your job. It takes over. It's got this power. And we could say the same thing about sexual addiction or, or even just workplace addiction. These things become consuming. They, they consume us and we, we neglect our families or, or we lose those things in our lives. Now, I realize it's a modern heresy to say that we are enslaved to anything, but, but think about it. I mean, we, we live in a technological age. Uh, we have unprecedented freedom in our own schedules and in our own lives. I mean, just think about the, the advent of the washing machine and the, the automobile and light bulbs and all of these innovations, these time-saving innovations or even time-transcending innovations. They've allowed us to kind of get control of our lives, get control of our schedules. And so we have unprecedented freedom to, to do what? To do whatever it is we want to do. That's what we do with our freedom. We do what we want to do. And yet, I think you can make the case that rising with that, with that rise in convenience and time and comfort is a subsequent rise in our misery, in addiction, in mental illness. All of these things have, have followed precisely because we have so much free time so many opportunities to do what it is we want to do it's sort of exposed our own bondage to these things and the misery that results from them brett mccracken recently wrote this regarding the um, apple products he says from its ingenious eye branding to its famous solitary person dancing to their own beat iPod commercials to the revolutionary way app interfaces put the focus on individual preferences and curation power. Apple has defined its brand in terms of freedom and autonomy. Go where you want to go with your iPhone. Do with it what you will. The power is in your hands. No one else will have an eye experience quite like yours. Right? Now, you've had an iPhone, maybe a smartphone, whatever it is. Do you really feel more free as a result of that? Has it really liberated you? McCracken continues. He says, autonomy was also a key part of the temptation that drove Adam and Eve. They weren't satisfied with any limitations placed on their freedom. They had immense freedom to enjoy Eden's bounty. But the one thing God told them not to do, they did. The desire for absolute autonomy has been a root of sin ever since. And McCracken points out that on every iPhone that we you know, reach for is a, is a piece of fruit, an apple that's taken a bite out of it. How, how ironic. That, that, that is the case. Jonathan Edwards wrestled with this question of freedom, and he said, uh, free will, and he said that, yes, that we as humans are free to do what we want to do. If, if, if by free you mean the ability to do whatever it is we want to do, we can do that. But we're not free not to sin. Our will is in bondage to sin, and sin is what we will do every time. You can count on it. We're captive to sin, and as a result, 
because we sin and we choose sin, we we are over the course of our lives committing a slow suicide. Because remember, God, Jesus, is life. That's what John has been telling us. And to the extent that we turn from him and turn to the darkness, to our sin, our actions are bringing about a slow death over time. We're enslaved. That's our enslavement. It's a spiritual enslavement. I think it's universally true, the scriptures say. I think that can be pretty well clearly demonstrated. So the question now is, if we're enslaved to sin, if the modern idea of freedom is bogus, that we're not these autonomous, freely choosing people, but we're actually captive to sin, and sin is what we will do every time, the question we need to consider now is, how do we find freedom? And it's not what you would expect, right? We think that freedom means the ability to do whatever it is we want to do. It's autonomy. That's what freedom is. And Jesus says, no, verse 31, look at what he says. Abide in my word, abide in me, abide in what I say, abide in my truth, my word, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And so this is what Jesus says, live according to what I say. Now that's confounding. Abide in my word. And what does abide mean? It means to live according to, to do what I say. And it's confounding because it, it, it stands right up against this idea of autonomy. That the, the freedom means being able to do whatever we want to do. And Jesus says, no, that's not it. You abide in me. The goal is not autonomy because here, here's the problem with our individual autonomy. It only quickens how responsive we are to our own slave masters of sin, which brings about our eventual death. The biblical answer to enslavement is not authority, but the right authority in our lives. Not just any, it's not just the removal of authority, but it's having the right authority in our lives. It's not the removal of, of all constraints, but it's having the right constraints in our lives, the right master in our lives, and the master is Jesus, our Lord. The book of Exodus is a wonderful example of this, the whole book, um, because Moses at the, in the opening chapter describes the, the problem for the people, for, for the Hebrews, and it's, he makes it very clear. He uses this word, this Hebrew word, abad, over and over and over again, and the word abad means uh, to be enslaved. He says that the people of Israel, and I'm, I'm just translating it uh, literally as, as the word comes up, the people of Israel slaved as slaves, and the Egyptians made their lives bitter with hard slave, uh, slavery in mortar and brick and in all kinds of slaving in the field and all their slaving. They, the, the Egyptians ruthlessly made them slave as slaves. You get the idea, right? And so you're thinking, okay, so the book of Exodus is a move from enslavement to freedom. That's true. But I want you to notice the nature of the freedom that the Hebrews experience. Because when Moses asks the Lord, what should I say when the Pharaoh says, I'm not letting my, this, my workforce go, my slave force, the, the people that are actually building this power of Egypt, I'm not letting them go. 
Moses says, well, what should I tell the Pharaoh if he doesn't let, let the people go? You remember what God says? Tell the Pharaoh that you must let them go so that they can abide me, serve me, bind themselves to my leadership and lordship in life. And so here Jesus is saying the same. He's saying, abide in me. Abide in me. This makes sense. This makes sense. I mean, even of our own experience. I mean, think about how babies learn to speak. How, how do you learn to talk, to speak English? We have young babies in our congregation. They're starting to say words. How do they do that? Well, they abide in the English language. They, they, they sit in it. They dwell in it. They listen to it. And by abiding in it, they begin to make sense of it. But they have to submit to it. They can't just say anything. They have to say the right words and they have to put them in the right order. And eventually they'll go to school and they'll learn the letters and putting them in the right order. And they'll learn their grammar and they'll learn how to write. And as they gain like an understanding, as they abide in the English language, they will gain freedom to speak and all the liberation that follows. Now they don't have to cry when they need a drink. They can just ask drink and it appears and as they grow in school they, they develop that and they become more free and flourish more as individuals the more they abide in the english language the same could be said of of an instrument a person a musician who learns an instrument you abide with the piano you abide in uh the music the the, the sheet music you understand it you learn it you submit to the rules of, of music, you submit to the rules of the instrument, you abide with it, you submit to the teacher's instruction, and you will find over time you gain freedom to enjoy the instrument. The same thing could be said of sports. You, you apply discipline, you submit to the coach's instruction, you submit to the fundamentals of the game, you submit to the rules of the game, and you flourish within the game. It's, it's just... It's how it works. Like our freedom is always sort of coupled with some sort of constraint. We can dance because of gravity, right? And Jesus is saying, look, abide in me. I abide in the Father. You abide in me, in my word, in my truth, which is truth." It's the truth of the universe. I am life. If you abide in me, you will find yourself becoming more alive. I am truth. If you abide in me, you will find your, your, yourself becoming more integrated, more whole, more truthful. All of the fruits will, will all of my fruits will become your fruits if you abide in me. It's, it's, it's a way in which we get in step with the universe by abiding in Christ. Let, let me try to illustrate this. Uh, you remember your days out on the old elementary school playground, and there was, there was usually a benevolent tough guy out there. And if you abided in that benevolent tough guy, then when the low-level riffraff of the playground would make their way towards you, you knew you were in good standing. 
the little, the benevolent tough guy would come over, he would flex his fifth grade muscles, and the low-level riffraff would just sort of scatter. Why? Because the benevolent tough guy owned the playground. It was his world. It was his universe. And he was good. So he kept it in good order. Jesus has been saying, John has been telling us through this gospel that Jesus created, sustains, has power, lordship, kingship over all the world, all the universe. It's his. And if you abide in him, you will reap all the benefits that come with living in step with the universe. You will flourish as an individual because he, contro because he controls the playground of the universe. He's in charge. Abide in him. Now, let's conclude. Uh, verse 35, Jesus says, The slave doesn't remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. Now, this is maybe pretty obvious, but slavery has been a fixture in, 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 in uh, world history. And no exception to this time. They're familiar with this concept of, of slavery. And, you know, slave may be obvious, but slave didn't have a permanent place in a home. They could be sold. Uh, they could leave. In, in the Roman world, for example, they could even buy their, their freedom. Um, but a son's place in the home was permanent. And Jesus says, look, I'm a son. My place in the father's house is permanent. And not only that, but eventually the son grows up and becomes manager of the father's household. And I can also set you free as a result. I can set you free. And as the rest of the scriptures unfold, we're going to find out a surprising thing. And that is not only will Jesus set us free, but God the Father will also adopt us as his children. Paul puts it this way in Galatians chapter 4. This is uh, Galatians 4 verses 6 and 7. Paul says, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. Verse 7. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now, Paul is using this language of, of son. He's not just being misogynist here. He's, this is, he's actually making a pretty radical claim because he's, he's writing to males and females. And what he's saying is, look, you are no longer slaves, men and women of Galatia and us, by extension, we're no longer slaves. We're sons. And, and, and as a result, we're heirs of God. You see, in the ancient world, women were not heirs of, of a father's place. It was a son that were heirs. And Paul is saying, look, male, female, doesn't matter. You're all sons of, you're all sons of God and therefore heirs of God. And that's true of us. We're not slaves in Christ. If we find ourselves in Christ, we're no longer slaves, but sons. I love the way the Charles Wesley hymn, And Can It Be, describes our salvation in Christ. Listen to what he says. He says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin in nature's night. Thine eye diffused a life-giving, quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light, my chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. And yet, and yet, our enslaved past keeps beckoning. 
hey, come back over here. Come back to me, to your sins. We, we, remember the good times we had together? Remember what life's like with me? Come back. Keeps beckoning us. Come back to our old masters. Come back to our old slave masters. Leon Cass, who's re- recently written a reflection on the book of Exodus, he says, you know, getting the Hebrew slave out of Egypt is a lot quicker than getting Egypt out of the slave. Right? Getting the Hebrew slave out of Egypt took a lot less time than getting Egypt out of the Hebrew slave. So, you know, back to back to Charles Wesley, God in Christ has has burst through the the, the dungeon door, um, has ripped apart the chains that enslaved us, and he's freed us, and we've been called to rise and go forth and follow him. And yet we still struggle. We still, we still fall back. We shrink back into the old slave mindset. While we've been set free, our mind and, and our hearts, they have this tendency to go back and, and live as slaves, just like the people of uh, the Hebrew people did. Remember, remember how odd they, it was, the, the way they would talk about Egypt with such fondness as they're in the wilderness? about how their meat pots were full and they were fed so well in, 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 uh, in Egypt, forgetting that they were fed because they were the workforce. The Egyptians, they, they had to, they, they were feeding them to energize them to build the empire. Didn't, didn't, Egypt had plenty of graves. Why couldn't, why couldn't we die out there instead of here? Their minds and their hearts are going back with a strange fondness and nostalgia for their time as a slave. Look, and, and we're tempted to do the same thing. There's a, there's a wonderful story. I've shared this before. A seminary professor of mine d- directed my attention to it. It's the story of Carlos Martinez, a St. Louis Cardinal pitcher. He grew up in the Dominican Republic in just complete poverty, um, utter poverty. He, his, his father was not in the picture uh, when he was born. His mother died when he was 18 months old. And so his, his grandma uh, took him in and he called her mom or mommy. And they lived in this very poor neighborhood in the Dominican. And every time it would rain, the floodwaters would pour down the alley, pour down the city streets and flood into their home. And this is, this is how, what he, how he describes it growing up. Carlos says, before it would even begin to rain, my grandmother, mommy, would start going around the house and picking everything up off the floor. It would just be getting cloudy outside, and she'd already begin preparing for the damage. Over and over again, she would do that. Sometimes the rains wouldn't even come. She would have spent part of the day moving things around in our house, and when the rain did fall, I just remember her crying, just standing there, helpless and crying, as a stream of dirty, polluted water flooded into our home. When the rain stopped, there was some relief, but we all knew that it was only a matter of time before the same thing would happen again. It was such a miserable way to live, and every day as a young boy, I thought about what I might be able to do to help my family. Well, as a young teenager, uh, Carlos, interestingly, entered the uh, training for the priesthood. A friend kind of volunteered him for it. 
And he goes off to seminary and spends several years uh, studying, preparing for the priesthood. And it comes time for graduation. And um, the, 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 the teachers and administrators of the school realize that he has no birth certificate. So he's done all this training and they're not going to allow him to graduate from the program because of the lack of a birth certificate. And this is a low point for him. And, he, and listen to what he says, Carlos. He says, I have, I have no mom. I have no dad. I have no record that I even exist. I'm no one. What am I even doing here in this world? And so it turns out that Carlos is also a good baseball player. And not long after this priest, uh, the rejection from the priesthood, at about age 16, Carlos uh, goes to a training camp for the, for the Red Sox, a tryout for the Red Sox. And he's playing shortstop. He's a little five-foot guy, uh, 16, uh, shortstop. And they ask him to get on the, on the pitcher's mound to throw some pitches. And he does. And the first pitch clocks in at 92 miles per hour. And they're blown away. And then guess this Red Sox camp. Guess who shows up at the camp and starts watching as he's pitching? David Ortiz, Pedro Martinez. And so, you know, now Carlos is really excited. His, his, his pitches get all the way up to 96 miles per hour. And you can throw 96 miles per hour as a 16-year-old that hasn't hit a growth spurt. Then you can play Major League Baseball. And not long after that, he was drafted by the Cardinals and moved to St. Louis began making a big league salary. And not long after this arrival in the big leagues, uh, Carlos buys a home for his mom in a, nice, in a nice neighborhood in the Dominican. And so he's visiting her and he says this, after she moved into the new home, I came over one day and found her rearranging everything that had been set up. She was moving everything around to places that didn't seem to make any sense. I had no idea what was going on. Then it hit me. It had just started raining. Mommy was moving the furniture to higher ground because, well, that's all she ever knew. Like when it starts clouding up, you move things off the floor so the polluted water doesn't ruin every single thing you own. Tears started streaming down my face at that point. It was just so sad to me that she had been programmed to always expect the absolute worst out of life. Mommy, I said, you're here in this nice place now. The water isn't going to come in. The water cannot get you any longer. Now this story of, of Carlos Martinez and his, and his grandmother, it's our story. It's our story. We have been pulled out of our spiritual poverty and placed into the into the riches of Christ. Jesus says as, as he says in this passage, we've been we've been pulled out of our enslavement to sin and not just made a free person, but made a son and daughter of Christ. And what Jesus says and what the whole witness of the New Testament says is live out of that. Don't shrink back into into a slave mindset. Don't nostalgically look back on an old sinful past. You're free. You're a son and daughter. So, so live like it. Root yourself in who you are in Christ, the indicative, and let the imperative, let what you do flow out of who you are.
a slave, and not just a slave, as Paul says, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let's pray as we close. Our Father, we give you thanks for these sweeping promises that you grant that you give us. Our spirits are are slow to learn, slow to realize. We pray that your spirit on this Pentecost Sunday, that your spirit would pierce our hearts, making us keenly aware of our identity in Christ, that we are free, that we are rich, that we are no longer slaves, but sons and daughters, and help us live as such. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.